Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, episode 25, is it? Yeah, I think it's 25. Um, today, I'm going to be responding to Rationality Rules' um, YouTube video called The Argument from Morality Debunked, William Lane Craig's Moral Argument Refuted. Um... And I had to look up this guy's name because I can't. I di- I don't want to keep referring to him by his YouTube channel name and Twitter name. Uh, his name is Stephen Woodford. Stephen Woodford is the guy that makes the Rationality Rules videos. And like I said last week, I wrote a blog post responding to his uh, treatment of the Kalam cosmological argument, and I made a podcast episode to supplement the blog post, because many people in the younger generation don't like to read, and, you know, they'll watch YouTube videos, they'll listen to podcasts, but they won't read a blog post if it's more than just a few paragraphs long. That's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is, and so I blog and I podcast in order to reach everyone. Um, Like Paul says, be all things to all people so that by the grace of God, I might save some. Uh, I would make YouTube videos as well, except I don't have any video editing skills, and that would just be another... Um, cer- as, cerebral faith is all me. I'm the only one who does it. I'm the only, I'm, I write the books, I write the blog posts, I do the podcasts, I do all of the editing of the books and podcasts. The books are self-published, the podcast, um, the blog posts, everything... It's a, it's a one-man show, and so doing videos, even if I had the skills, which I don't, that would just be one more thing to add to my workload. But I can, but, anyway, today I'm going to be responding to his moral argument video, and I wrote a blog post on this as well, just like with the Kalam Cosmological Argument, uh, I responded to him in a blog post, and I responded to him in a podcast episode. And the same goes with the moral argument. I responded to him in a blog post, and now I'm responding to him in a podcast episode. Now, before I uh, get started, let me just uh, get my patron shout-outs done. Shout-out to Jordan Apodaca, Kevin Walker, David Parrish. I almost called him Stephen Parrish. And Kevin Whitaker. You guys are awesome. Thank you for supporting this ministry through your patronage. And uh, by the way, if you want to support Cerebral Faith, go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Now, let's get on with the show. His first objection is that it begs the question. And here I'll play the clip of him explaining his argument. ...that we're going to debunk in this video. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist 
Therefore, God exists. Before we proceed to debunk Craig's moral argument, I want to make it clear that Craig does not, all of the time, commit all of the following flaws and fallacies, but rather he commits each of the following flaws at different times, and the same goes for those who use his moral argument. With that said, the first flaw I'd like to raise is that premise one is completely unsubstantiated, making the entire argument a non sequitur. It in no way logically follows that only a specific god can be responsible for the existence of objective moral values, unless the proponent is literally defining objective moral values to mean moral values, principles and duties that are declared by God. And if they are doing this, then they are including the claim of their argument within their premise, which is begging the question. To illustrate this further, simply replace the word God with Cthulhu, and you'll quickly appreciate how absurd this argument is. It's either a non sequitur or it's begging the question. A second flaw that Craig's moral argument commits. Okay, I played a part of the clip that... Um includes William Lane Craig unpacking the syllogism, because before I, I kind of jumped the gun, um, I meant to have included uh, the, the syllogism for the argument before I looked at his objections. And so, yeah. One, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Three, therefore, God exists. Now, Stephen Woodford says that the... First premise is unsubstantiated, making the entire argument a non-sequitur. And he says, it in no way logically follows that only a specific god could be responsible for the moral values unless we're defining moral, unless we're defining moral values and duties to mean moral values, principles, and duties that are declared by God, which would render the argument question-begging. Now, first, I would like to point out that... Mr. Woodford doesn't appear to understand what the non-sequitur fallacy is. The non-sequitur fallacy, which is its Latin for does not follow, is a formal fallacy, not an informal fallacy. Now, what do I mean by that? A formal fallacy is committed when a syllogism's conclusion does not follow from the premises even if you were to grant all of the premises as true. And in the example I gave in my blog post, um, one, if it rained today, the ground will be wet. Two, it did not rain today. Three, therefore the ground will not be wet. This conclusion does not follow from the premises because it commits the formal fallacy known as denying the antecedent. And when symbolized, it looks like this. If P, then Q. Not P, therefore not Q. This is logically fallacious. Just because it did not rain today, which is what premise 2 asserts, that does not mean that the ground won't be wet, which is what the conclusion asserts. The ground might be wet for other reasons. Perhaps a wild animal tore up the swimming pool causing the backyard to be, uh, to be flooded. Or maybe your wife installed a sprinkler system yesterday without your knowledge. Uh, there could be a, a variety of reasons why the ground uh, is wet. Uh, animal, wild animal tore up the swimming pool and the, all of the pool just gushed into the backyard. Um, 
a sprinkler and system was uh, installed without your knowledge? Who knows? Now, if it rained, the ground would be wet. And so you could legitimately argue the following. One, if it rained today, the ground will be wet. Two, it rained today. Three, therefore the ground will be wet. Um, this, this argument, unlike the previous example, is not logically fallacious because it takes the rule of inference known as modus ponens, which goes like this when it is symbolized. If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. So, if it rained today, the ground will be, re will be wet. It did not rain today, therefore the ground will not be wet. That doesn't follow. But, if it rained today, the ground will be wet. It rained today, therefore the ground will be wet. That does follow. So, a non-sequitur argument is an argument that even if you granted both premises, if it rained today, the ground will be wet, it did not rain today, the conclusion does not necessarily follow. Even if I were to grant both premises in that rain argument, I could not legitimately say the ground will not be wet. Because, like I said, could be wet for other reasons besides rain. Now, for the moral argument to be a non-sequitur argument, it would have to commit a formal fallacy like denying the antecedent or affirming the consequent or other types of formal fallacies. But it doesn't. The, ar the moral argument takes the form modus tollens. Modus tollens, when symbolized, looks like this. One, if P, then Q. Two, not Q. Three, therefore, not P. This is a valid, logical form. If it is true that if P is true, then Q logically follows, and yet Q is not true, then it follows that P is not true either. Because if P entails Q, then were P to be true, Q would be true. That's modus ponens. But if it turns out that Q, whatever Q is, is false, then it follows that P is not false. If I, ju uh, if I jumped out of an airplane 3,000 miles into the sky... I would die when I hit the ground. I am not dead. Therefore, I did not jump out of a, an airplane 3,000 uh, 3, miles into the sky. If P, then Q, not Q, therefore not P. The moral argument takes this form. One, if God does not exist, if P, objective moral values and duties do not exist, then Q. Two, Objective moral values and duties do exist, not Q. Three, therefore, God exists, not P. Now, if what Stephen Woodford, Rationality Rules, means by saying that it's a non-sequitur, if what he means by that is that the conclusion doesn't follow because he thinks one of the premises is false, that's different. But that's not a non-sequitur. That's, non that's just... 
an unsound argument if one of the premises is false. And in that case, he's got to show us which premise he thinks is false and why. Otherwise, by saying it's a non-sequitur, is merely an assertion. Secondly, I, I think a specific God does need to exist to ground objective moral values and duties. I've explained this in my book, The Case for the One True God, a, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity, uh, which you can get on paperback and Kindle format on Amazon.com. Now, I don't fault... Mr. Woodford for not knowing this because, uh, because he is interacting with William Lane Craig and his material on the argument. He's not interacting with my material on the argument. But even in Craig's material, Craig argues that a morally perfect, necessarily existent personal being must be the grounds of morality, and he gives his reasons why. Now, in my book, I unpack which religion has a god meeting those criteria, which which religion has a morally perfect, necessarily existent God, and, and I do this in my book, The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. So I would deny that you could, that you could, as he said, replace Yahweh with Cthulhu. Cthulhu could not exist, and this wouldn't entail moral nihilism. However, if the God of the Bible doesn't exist, then moral nihilism or relativism or any non-objective version of morality would follow. Let me defend this claim. Defense of premise one, moral values. Now, let me point out that this version of the argument that I defend in my book, The Case for the One True God, and that Craig defends, uh, distinguishes between moral values and moral duties. Moral values have to do with good and evil. Moral duties have to do with right and wrong. Now, you might think that that's a distinction without a difference. Good is the same as right. Wrong, evil is the same as wrong. But when you think about it, it really there really is a, a difference. Uh, just because something is good for you to do, that wouldn't mean that you're in t that you're obligated to do it. It would be good for you to be a pastor, a police officer, a lawyer, a fire uh, firefighter, a doctor, a nurse, um, a pilot, an airplane pilot, uh, an astronaut, a biologist, an astrophysicist, and many other things. Yet clearly, you are not able to do all of these things, and you're not obligated to do all of these things. It would be good for you to be an astrophysicist, or a firefighter, or a police officer, or a doctor, but you're not obligated to, be, to become any of those things. Now, by contrast, you are obligated to give to the poor, give to the needy, um, be faithful to your spouse, um, and by contrast, uh, something is, is bad but not necessarily morally wrong. You're not morally uh, prohibited from doing it. For example, some might argue that it's bad for you to let yourself go, for you to um, become overweight and not exercise, and but they wouldn't say that you're doing anything morally wrong. But you would be morally wrong if you killed an innocent person so, moral values, moral duties, not the same thing. Now, do, 
moral values. Let's look at moral values. First off, if theism is not true, then what remains for thinking that human beings are intrinsically valuable? On atheism, man is just a biological organism. There are other biological organisms on this planet. What makes humans more valuable than the life of a cockroach or a tree or a mosquito or a flea? Oh, I'm turning into Dr. Seuss here. <laughs> more, most people don't believe you're committing murder when you stomp on a cockroach or cut down a tree, but they do think you're committing murder if you end the life of another human being. Why is it that the life of a man is of more value than that of a roach or a tree? Why is it murder to cut down a man, but not murder to cut down a tree? They're both living organisms. They're both considered life. Maybe humans are more valuable than these things because they're more advanced. A man, unlike a roach or a tree, can walk, talk, and do complex mathematical equations. A person can build a rocket and fly it to the moon. A person can build houses. A person can do many things that lower animals cannot do, and, and it's certainly something trees cannot do. I've never seen a tree build a house. That would be... I, I would have to check my mental health if I ever did. <laughs> but if you were to say that this is what makes a man intrinsically valuable, then another question immediately rises. Why is complexity a criterion for objective worth? Why is a human more valuable than any other organism just because he's higher up on the evolutionary tree? Why isn't it the case that simpler organisms have the, have the most worth, like an amoeba, why is the advancedness of a man a criteria for his objective worth? It doesn't seem that there is any intrinsic worth of human life on the atheistic worldview. On atheism, man is just a bag of chemicals on bones who, because of the electrochemical processes in his brain, neurons firing and molecules going about in motion, goes about his day thinking that his life is valuable. This despite the fact that he was thrust into existence from a blind process which did not have him in mind, despite the fact that he's a tiny speck of dust on a somewhat less tiny speck of dust called planet Earth in a, mass, in a massive and hostile universe that cares not whether he lives or dies. On atheism, there is nothing but matter, energy, space, and time. On atheism... Why is one bag of chemicals on bones sacred and intrinsically valuable, but other bags of chemicals on bones, not so much? Now, it is true that humans can have subjective value. Many people have other people who care about them. Uh, a man loves his wife, his kids, and his parents. Given that many people have other people who care about them, one might say that they really do have value after all. But this isn't objective value, it's subjective. What that means is that your worth is dependent on how many people love you. This type of value that a detractor of my argument may refer to seems akin to sentimental value. A man may cherish a toy because it reminds him of the happy times he had back in his childhood. There may be thousands of toys exactly like it, but this one is special to him, because it is this one that he grew up with. Replacing it is out of the question. However, the toy doesn't have objective value, that is to say, value in and of itself. The value of the toy is wholly dependent upon the man cherishing it.
Human beings on atheism seem to have that kind of value. We have sentimental value to those around us. People care about us. We are important to them. But we don't seem to have any value intrinsically in and of ourselves. I cannot see how human life can have any objective worth on the atheistic view. And it seems that the first premise of the moral argument is correct, that if God does not exist, there are no objective moral values. Man is just a bag of chemicals on bones, he's nothing but a speck of dust in a hostile and mindless universe, and is doomed to perish in a relatively short time. When a man runs a man through with a sword, when a man runs an innocent man through with a, with a sword and kills him, it is just atoms in the universe rearranging themselves in a particular way. And there is no real moral dimension to this act than there would if a meteor struck a hole in another meteor. It's just atoms rearranging themselves. Why would you ascribe moral value to one set of atoms arranging themselves, in this case a murderer running an innocent man through with a sword, but not ascribe moral values to another set of atoms rearranging themselves, one comet piercing another comet. What makes human life sacred on atheism? I, I don't see any reason to think that there is any, any, anything that makes human life sacred within the atheistic framework. Moral duties. If atheism is true, then it would seem that moral values go out the window. The life of human beings is no more worth protecting than the life of insects. Now, if moral values go out the window, then moral duties go with it. Why? Because if man has the same value as a flea, then you have the same amount of moral obligation towards your fellow man as you do a flea. Since atheism robs human life of objective, intrinsic worth, why is it morally wrong to kill someone on that worldview? If humans have no moral value, then, it, then we don't have any moral duties either. To reject moral values is to reject moral duties. If human life is worthless, then ending it is not a crime. Why is it an atrocity to kill six million Jews, but not an atrocity to exterminate an entire hill of ants? What reason is there to think that there's a real moral difference between these two situations if atheism is true? If human life has no objective value, then discarding it isn't a moral abomination. I realize this is a ghastly and horrible thing to say, but this is, folks, I'm just simply stating the logical implications of the atheistic worldview. Now, in, in his talk, Arguments for God's Existence, at the Truth for a New Generation conference in Spartanburg, South Carolina in 2012, J.P. Moreland gave another way to think about this. Dr. Moreland explained that we can tell what is right and wrong because there's a moral duties, because there's a prescription of how something ought to behave. Dr. Moreland asked the audience at Truth For A New Generation how we can tell the difference between a good carburetor and a bad carburetor. 
We can tell the difference because there's a way a carburetor ought to function. It ought to make the car run. If it doesn't, Moreland says, we conclude that it's a defective carburetor. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It's not behaving the way it was designed to work. It's not working the way that its creator intended it to work. Now, let's switch the analogy from carburetors to leaves from an autumn tree. These leaves fell from an autumn tree and just so happened to land on my front porch because the wind randomly blew them up there. Given that there was no design involved, there's really no prescription of how these leaves should have landed. Moreland said that he couldn't point at one leaf, one particular leaf, and say, You see that leaf? That's a bad leaf. That's a really bad leaf. He can't say that because there's no purpose to the formation of the leaves on the porch. They just blew up there through the wind and natural processes. No purpose, no design, no intentionality. Now, with the carburetors, everyone knows there's a way that they ought to perform. Therefore, we can look at one functioning carburetor and call it good, and look at a non-functioning carburetor and call it bad. Moreland's point, it, Dr. Moreland's point is that if atheism is true, we're like the leaves on the porch. We just, there's, there's no purpose, there's no design. We weren't made by anyone who intended us to behave a certain way. We just arrived here through blind, undirected natural processes so, you can't point to Charles Manson and say that he is a non-functioning carburetor and look at Mother Teresa and say that she's a functioning carburetor. That they are functioning the way that they were created to. They're, they are living out their intended purpose. Can't say that, because on atheism, there is no intended purpose. Now, if there is an oughtness, if there are moral duties... Then, it follows that we were made for a purpose. We were made by a personal being who intended us to behave a person uh, in a certain way. And this being inscribed this, these moral duties into our, into our minds. Like as Romans chapter 2 verses 14 to 15 says, Only a personal being can give purpose to a system. Blind forces don't care how you behave. Only a person would. I think that affirming the truth of the first premise is far more reasonable than denying it. Now, if premise two of the moral argument is true, premise two states objective moral values and duties do exist, then with these two premises it follows that God exists. The conclusion follows. But what type of God could the God of the moral argument be? Could it be Zeus? Could it be Thor, Odin, Athena, Cthulhu, as rationality rules and contends? I make, my, I make the case in my book, The Case for the One True God, that only the uniquely Christian conception of God can be the standard of morality. This is because the type of God needed to ground objective moral values and duties must be morally perfect necessarily existent and sovereign over all creation to enforce his moral standards. The God of the moral argument must be morally perfect, or perfectly good, 
because if any evil being were the standard of morality, then Adolf Hitler would be closer to the moral standard than Mother Teresa, which is absurd. He must be necessarily existent because moral tr at least some moral truths seem to be necess necessary truths, as I believe it was Michael Ruse who said uh, that the man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as 2 plus 2 equals 5. That's Michael Ruse, an atheist philosopher. And here, he is implying that mo the moral statement, it is morally wrong to rape little children, is just as true as... as as 2 plus 2 equals 4, which is, as most philosophers will recognize, mathematical truths are necessary truths. It is true in all possible worlds that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and false in all possible worlds that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Now, a necessary being, a being who has to exist and cannot fail to exist, that's what I, that's what I mean by a necessary being, he must exist to ground necessary truths, like moral like it is morally wrong to rape little children and of course he must be personal because like i said only a personal being can give purpose to a system this cannot be a, a, this cannot be like like chris hansen contended in our debate on the moral argument uh uh what oh how did he put it an impersonal logos just sort of a impersonal god it couldn't be can't be Blind force, uh, only personal beings can give purpose to a system. Now, the moral perfection of this being entails that God, this being, must be a being that consists of more than one person. Why? Well, being all loving is a part of good morality. But before the creation of humans, God had no one to love. So, if God had no one to love, how could he be loving? He couldn't be. And if he isn't loving, he isn't morally perfect. How do we resolve this? The doctrine of the Trinity provides the answer. God must be triune in order to be love. This is because love requires three things. One, a lover, two, a beloved, and three, a relationship between them. On the Trinitarian view, God was loving even before any people existed, because there was a loving relationship within himself between the persons of the Trinity. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has a God who is one entity that consists of three distinct persons. Look at all the religious texts that you want, and you will not find another deity that is one divine essence consisting of multiple persons. So therefore, the moral argument gets us to the Christian God. Okay, let's move on. To, I know I spent a lot of time on that, but let's move on to the second objection that Stephen Woodford, Rationality Rules, raises. I'm going to play the clip now. The second flaw that Craig's moral argument commits and one that is subtle but completely devastating, is an equivocation fallacy. To put it as bluntly as possible, during his first premise, Craig and his argument uses a definition of the term objective moral values that is, for all intent and purposes, the definition of absolute moral values. 
That is, moral values, principles and duties that are universally valid and true unconditionally and under all circumstances. But during his second premise, he uses a definition of the term objective moral values that is, moral values, principles and duties that exist independent of human opinion, but may vary according to context and circumstance. Hence, Craig's moral argument is incoherent and therefore invalid. Either this, or Craig and his argument are exclusively using the first definition or the second definition of objective moral values for both of his premises. And if he is using the first definition, then his first premise is entirely false, because there are many types of morality that are absolute, that don't insist on his specific god's existence, such as the deontological ethics of Kant's categorical imperative, some forms of the golden rule, and of course, competing forms of divine command theory. These objective moralities exist, period. The question is whether or not their foundations are substantiated. Divine command theory. And if Craig is using the second definition of objective moral values for both of his premises, then, again, the first premise is entirely false. Because, again, there are many types of morality that are objective in this way. That is, they have an objective reference point, a reference point that exists independent of human opinion. Okay, so, this, uh, this accusation that the argument commits the fallacy of equivocation is patently false. For one thing, even if William Lane Craig made this mistake, that would not be a flaw of the argument, but that would be a a flaw with the specific way that Craig defends it. One could, and I myself certainly do, use the same definitions when speaking of objective moral values and duties in both premise one and premise two. And so the argument, at least the way I use it, does not commit the fallacy of equivocation. Because I mean, when I mean objective moral values and duties, I mean moral values and duties that are universally true and valid regardless of human opinion. They're not grounded in human opinion. They are, but there are, as he said, they may vary according to context and circumstance. Like, we all know the, the famous example of lying to Nazis uh, to protect Jews from being killed. So, that's what I mean. I mean, it's true of univer- it is it's true, and they are, it is universally binding. Lying is morally wrong, but there, it may vary. Lying, whether lying is right or wrong, does depend on the context. Are you lying to, uh, get, are you lying in a job interview? Are you lying to your parents or your wife? Are you, are you lying to cover up wrong that you have done? Or are you lying to protect innocent life, like in the case of the Nazis? Whereas if you told the truth in that situation, you would be um, giving many innocent people over to evil people and sending them to their death. So I would say that telling the truth in, in, the, in the case with the Nazis would be morally wrong. And so, and what, and killing, killing a person, what, what, that is morally wrong if you are killing a person in revenge, 
if you are killing them um, to steal from them, if you are killing them because you hate them, if you are killing them because uh, of their skin color, a hate crime, that's, that's morally wrong. But if you were to shoot a madman who entered a movie theater and was shooting up the place and trying to take down as many victims as he could, and you shot that person, I would say that is morally right. Shooting a terrorist before he can kill innocent people, that is morally right. It is objectively true that that is morally right in that circumstance, and it is objectively true that killing people in all of the other aforementioned circumstances is morally wrong. It's objective. It's true regardless of human opinion or any subject. Now, William Lane Craig is clear... Uh, so, like I said... Okay, I jumped the gun again. Like I said, this is not... Uh, uh, a problem with the argument itself, even if Craig were doing this. It would just be a problem with how Craig uh, uses the argument. He would be using a good argument uh, illegitimately, but I use the same argument, and I mean the same thing in both premises, and that's the second definition of objective moral values and duties that, uh, that Woodford offered in his video. So... Uh, I think that Woodford is coming da comes dangerously close to committing the ad hominem fallacy here. Now, Craig now does William Lane Craig actually commit the fallacy of equivocation when he uses the argument? I don't think so. Craig is clear that he specifically uses the word objective and avoids the word absolute. And in the blog post I wrote on this, I included a video from Reasonable Faith's YouTube channel in which Craig explains this. He, do, he, specific, he explicitly and purposefully avoids the word absolute because he doesn't want people to think that he's advocating moral absolutes. Uh, both Craig and myself are clear that we mean the same thing in both premises. If God does not exist, then moral values and duties would not be truly independent of human opinion, but rather they would be rooted they would be rooted in human opinion, governmental laws, society, etc. But more, but given that moral values and duties are not rooted in human opinions, government or society, they are true regardless of what anyone thinks. It follows that God exists. Now, Craig and I would agree that some moral duties are absolute. Uh, it is objectively evil in all circumstances, no exceptions, to blaspheme God or to rape a little child. It doesn't matter what circumstance you are in, it's going to be morally wrong to blaspheme God or rape a little child. But if a Nazi came to your door... On the other hand, it would be objectively wrong to tell the truth in that circumstance, since doing so would send innocent people to their deaths. But it would be objectively right to tell the truth in most other circumstances. Now, Rationality Rules uh, himself acknowledges that Craig uh, disavows moral absolutes in his argument uh, at 5 minutes and 14 seconds to 6 minutes and 50 seconds in his video. But he thinks that Craig is contradicting himself because he plays two different clips of Craig, two different, talk, two different clips from two different talks 
that Craig has done. And he thinks that Craig is like a politician who says one thing at one time and then says a different thing at, a, at another time. Um, and you, you can go five minutes and 14 seconds to six minutes and 50 seconds to, to see what the two different things that Craig says. Now, I don't think that Craig is being inconsistent here. I would have to either watch the second talk in its full context, because, you know, I don't know, rationality rules, uh, maybe taking this guy, maybe taking Craig out of context, or I would have to ask Craig himself what he means in the two different clips. But I think what Craig is likely arguing in that second clip is that there are indeed moral absolutes. Not Every objective moral duty is an absolute morality, but some objective moral duties are absolute. Like, you, sh you should not blaspheme God. You should not rape little children. Uh, but, again, lying could vary depending on whether you're doing a job interview or trying to divert Nazis. Um, and moreover... It is possible that by unconditional, the, the word unconditional that Craig uses in the second clip, which Rationality Rules emphasizes in the video six minutes in, it's possible that what Craig means by that is that moral truths are unconditioned by human opinion or governmental law. Not that it's unconditioned by your circumstance. Torturing little babies for fun is true, unconditioned by human opinion or government or, or circumstance. Lying is unconditionally true in circumstances in which, you're, in which people deserve to know the truth, your family, your wife. Now, um, you, I think... Using unconditional as a synonym with objective is a little misleading, but let's be honest. We are all prone to badly wording things sometimes. Charity demands that we don't automatically assume that Craig is flip-flopping on his definitions. And again, like I said, the issue would not be an issue with how Craig defends the argument, I mean, and the issue would not be with the argument itself, but with how Craig defends the argument. I think that, I think that Stephen Woodford is uh, treading dangerously close to the ad hominem fallacy. Now, Mr. Woodford goes on to say that if Craig does mean absolute moral values, and he says, he says, quote, there are many types of morality that are absolute that don't insist on his specific God's existence, end quote. But this merely begs the question against the first premise of the argument. In fact, it's merely an assertion of the second, if absolute morality was the claim of both premises, that is. Woodford goes on, um, 4 minutes and 20 sec 26 seconds to 4 minutes and 58 seconds in the video, to mention other moral ontologies. He mentions, let me see... Uh, I got it pulled up here on YouTube. Uh, consequentialism, uh, m the moral landscape, which is um, defended and advocated for by uh, the philosopher Sam Harris, 
And of course, we've got God. We've got we've got different moral ontologies here. But again, this begs the question in favor of these other moral ontologies and against the first premise of the argument. In both my work and in Craig's work on the moral argument, part of what we do to defend the truth of the first premise is to show how these other moral ontologies, like moral Platonism, Sam Harris's moral landscape, consequentialism, etc., fail at providing an adequate ontological foundation of morality. Now, Stephen Woodford can defend these alternative moral ontologies, such as Sam Harris's moral landscape, if he wants to, uh, and if these succeed then premise one is not necessarily true. However, he cannot assert that the mere proposal of alternative moral ontologies automatically discredits premise one. To be honest, the three flaws that we've just covered are each more than enough to destroy Craig's moral argument. But for what it's worth, here's a few additional ones. It might be subtle, but Craig and the proponents of his moral argument very often commit an argument from ignorance. They do this because they implicitly assert, and sometimes explicitly, that only their very specific God could be responsible for the existence of objective moral values, without justifying why this is the case. In fact, they often state, Take away God, and what basis then remains for objective moral duties. Which translated from Fluffland to English means, we don't know, therefore God. My very specific God. A f <laughs> what did I say in the previous podcast episode? That running into God of the Gaps accusation is as inevitable as death and taxes. And no argument, no argument for God's existence is immune. You don't, not just arguments that employ science, but even the moral argument. Even the freaking ontological argument has been accused of this fallacy. Not very often, but it has on a couple of occasions. I mean, seriously. I, uh... So... Let me ask this. Was Rationality Rules sleeping in class again? Has he not read Craig's defense of the moral argument? Now, I know he probably hasn't read mine. I'm, I'm not a super-duper famous apologist or anything. Uh, but if he sees my response, uh, either on the blog or if he listens to this podcast episode, then he most certainly will. Uh, I've left the link to the blog posts uh, in both videos uh, in the comment section uh, in on YouTube, saying, "Hey, look, I responded to your video. Come check, click on this link. Come check it out." Um, look in the in this podcast episode, and in the very first subheader of my blog response, I explicitly explain why the uniquely Christian concept of God must be the foundation for objective moral values and duties, using positive arguments, specific reasons, things that I do know, to support the claim. 
The fact that rationality rules slash Stephen Woodford would make this objection just shows me that he is either... that he is just as ignorant of the moral argument as he is the Kalam. I mean, this is just... This is probably the worst objection out of all of the objections in his video. I I would be willing to say this is the number one worst objection. Okay, let's go to objection number four. When he said... When the proponent of the moral argument asks, if not God, then what? What grounds objective morality if it's not God? Stephen Woodford says that we are committing a logical fallacy known as shifting the burden of proof. But we are not. If you want to show that objective moral values and duties can exist in an atheistic framework you've got to provide an ontological foundation. It is not enough for you to simply deny premise one and think that you've done your job. Now, let me tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, atheists are notorious in all of the discussions on the internet that I've had with them. They are notorious for thinking that someone is shifting the burden of proof when All we are asking for is a substantiated rebuttal to the arguments we're we're making. Asking for a rebuttal, and asking for a rebuttal that is backed up by evidence, is not an invalid tactic. Asking for a substantiated rebuttal is not an invalid tactic. It is the nature of debate. Think, think about it th- think about it this way. Person one. Person one makes a claim and he backs it up with arguments. Then person two says, you're wrong. Person one says, oh, really? Why? Why am I wrong? And person one says, uh, person two says, I don't have to prove anything to you. You're shifting the burden of proof. X. Oh, X is wrong. Oh, why, why is X wrong? Oh, I don't have to prove anything to you. You're shifting the burden of proof. It's up to you to prove that X is true. I mean, the more I engage with internet atheists, the more that I find that they don't know how to logic. It is, it's just, you're not shifting the burden of proof if someone says your argument is fallacious and you want to know why. They can't just sit back and go, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, that's not true, that's not true. They gotta give reasons. I gave, I gave reasons for why premise one is true, and in, in my book, I didn't give any reasons for premise two in this podcast episode, but in my other written works, I give reasons for thinking premise two is true as well. Now, if you want to disagree with one of those premises, I've, look, I've given my reasons, and so has Craig for why both premises are true. If you think that our arguments supporting the premises are false, you gotta shoot them down. You can't just fold your arms and go, nuh-uh, nuh-uh. That's not how debate works. That's not how debate works. And it's not shifting the burden of proof for me to ask you for a substantiated rebuttal. To put it bl- To put it bluntly, Atheist, cut the crap.
cut the crap. Stop, st stop it with this nonsense. Okay, let's go on to his final objection. on that one. And finally, as the last flaw that I raise in this video, we have the fact that Craig's moral argument doesn't support monotheism. Even if objective moral values existed in the way that Craig insists, this wouldn't even suggest, let alone prove, that a single god is responsible. There is no reason to rule out the possibility that many gods are responsible. And in fact, there is no reason to rule out the possibility that many petulant and childish gods were responsible that have since died. The point being, Craig's argument supports theism, not monotheism, and certainly not his specific monotheism. Okay, so this is this is ridiculous. Now I'm going. I gotta give Woodward. A, I'm. I gotta give him a little bit of. Uh, I gotta be fair to him here. He he's not. I'm. He's very very unlikely unfamiliar with my writings on the material in which I unpack this. So I can't really blame him for just saying, "Well, it could just support any god." Uh, but in this podcast episode and in the blog post I wrote responding to. Stephen Woodford. Did I say Stephen Redford a few minutes ago? No. <laughs> um, and in my book, The Case for the One True God, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Historical Case for the God of Christianity, available on Amazon.com in paperback and Kindle, I point out, I give good reasons for thinking that not just any old deity can be the grounds of objective morality. You've got to have a necessarily existent, morally perfect, personal being, ground, objective morality. Now, you look at the conceptions of deity in the, in the religions of the world. You look at Zeus, Thor. You look at Odin, Athena. You look at Loki, um, Marduk. You look at the god of pantheism. Now, none of, none of the gods in the polytheistic religions can fit this because, well, for one thing, a lot of them were evil, or at least not as good as they could be. There's, there's a myth that says that Zeus kidnapped Europa and raped her. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think any morally perfect being would rape anyone. Loki was called the god of mischief. Now, would a morally perfect being get into mischief? And would he steal the Tesseract and lead aliens to take over New York? Oh, no, wait, that's that's not from mythology. That's from the Avengers. <laughs> um, and uh, would... Uh, well, and none of them are necessarily existent. They were all born. They had gods who birthed them, and they had gods who birthed them, and they had gods who birthed them, and so on and so forth, back and back and back to infinity. None of them are uncaused or uncreated. They were all... Birth. This is what is known in the in the literature as theogony, theogony, the origin of the gods. Now, why does the god of the moral argument need to be necessarily existent? Well, because, like I said, at least some, maybe even many, 
moral truths seem to be necessary truths. The atheist philosopher Michael Ruse said, and I quote, The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Now there he is comparing a moral truth, it is wrong to rape little children, with a mathematical truth, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And so if it is necessarily false that 2 plus 2 equals 5, it must be necessarily false that the, that it's morally acceptable to rape little children. And I would I would certainly agree with with Ruse on this point, but I can't I don't have the time to unpack this in much detail. The god of the moral argument must be morally perfect. Be, be, why? Because he's the standard of morality. His character and his his personality, his commandments, this is what we compare people to. He's the standard. And it, So, if any evil being were the standard of morality, then Adolf Hitler would be closer to the moral standard than Mother Teresa, which is absurd. You would be... If, if you had... Like, if you, want, if you said Satan was the standard of morality, then the more evil you were, the closer to the moral standard you would be than if you were good. Um, and that's absurd. So it must be a morally perfect, necessarily existent being. And I, I would also add he has to be sovereign over all creation in order to enforce his moral standards. If he were weak and pitiful, he might prescribe moral laws, but he wouldn't... Now, the moral perfection, as I said, the moral perfection entails that he must be a being who is multi-personal. Being loving is, uh, is a part of good morality, but before the creation of humans, God had no one to love, so how could he be loving? He couldn't be loving in in, po in all possible worlds. He couldn't be loving in a world before the creation of any other persons. Unless he were a multi-personal being. Love requires three things. One, a lover. Two, a beloved. And three, a relationship between the lover and the loved. On the Trinitarian view, God was loving even before any people existed because there was a loving relationship within himself between the persons of the Trinity. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has a God who is one entity that consists of three distinct persons. Therefore, the moral argument gets us to the Christian God. And, and I do uh, implore you to get my book, The Case for the One True God, if you want a more uh, thorough unpacking of the Christian theistic implications of the moral argument. So, in conclusion, I was just as underwhelmed with uh, Rationality Rules' objections to the moral argument as I was his objections to the Kalam cosmological argument. I really... I really thought that he would have some more substantial objections to the moral argument 
than this. I thought maybe the Kalam, I mean, the Kalam cosmological argument and the moral argument are two different arguments, and I thought, well, may, maybe just just because he has a poor grasp on one argument, that doesn't mean he has a poor grasp on on other arguments. But turns out his grasp of the moral argument is just as pitiful as his grasp on the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, now, I addressed these two videos. In, on my blog, cerebralfaith.blogspot.com, and in this podcast, because, number one, I was asked to by... The first one, I was asked by my patron, and then the second one was asked by someone uh, in the comment section on Facebook. And secondly, this guy is very influential. He's very popular. His views... Let me let me check. Let me see right quick. Um, yeah, his... his um, his view on the Kalam cos his video on the Kalam cosmological argument had like eighty one thousand something views. Uh, this one, the one on the moral argument, has ninety one thousand four hundred and sixty nine views, and he has. Let me see right quick. He has two hundred thousand two hundred seventy five. Sorry, I went to his page to check how many subscribers he has. One of his videos started playing. Uh, he's got 200,275 subscribers, and he makes over $2,000 on Patreon per creation. So this guy has got some... This guy has an online presence. He's... Um, he is having an influence. And therefore, even though his arguments at least the ones that I've looked at so far, suck. There's no there's no way to sugarcoat that. They suck. I still feel that I need to interact with them. Because, look, other people... I mean, this guy didn't get 200,000 subscribers for, for no reason. Other people may not be as uh, philosophically trained to see the holes in his argument... And therefore, they may think he has some good points. And therefore, that's not good. And like I said, you know, we, like I said in the previous podcast episodes, we, we hear Christian apologists like Frank Turek, J. Warner Wallace, uh, William Lane Craig, say that w when you send your... When you you need to equip your kids now with apologetics. You need to equip them with the reasons to believe because when you send them off to college, uh, they're going to be inundated with anti-God, anti-religion, uh, anti-theistic propaganda. And if you haven't equipped them with a sound epistemological foundation, they're going to come home atheists. And many do. Yeah, that's true. Many do. Many people lose their faith in college. But look, we're living in the digital age. This, you do not have to send your kids to college in order for them to be exposed to arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. You don't. Just, just listen. To, just read my story. Read my story of of how I got into apologetics. My first exposure to atheism was on Twitter when I tried to share my faith with with an atheist and he pelted me with a, a bunch of different objections he, he actually shotgun tacticked me 
um, with a whole bunch of different things, but he was very aggressive, but I couldn't answer any of them, any of his responses, and it caused me, it caused me to go through a serious spell of doubt. I almost, I almost became an agnostic from that. But your kids can go on YouTube, and they can watch Rationality Rules, or they can watch Thunderfoot, or Crocoduck, King Crocoduck, with bad arguments that they don't know are bad, they don't know any better, because they haven't been trained to see fallacies and they haven't been trained they haven't been shown what the arguments actually are and so if somebody is misrepresenting they don't know they're misrepresenting they can go on facebook and twitter and they can talk to these they can talk to these people in fact i think that exposure to Anti-Christian propaganda is as easy for a child to come across as, as it is for him to come across pornography. So, you need to, you need, you don't think that because your child might be 9 or 10 years old, that he's going to be safe for a while, that you can put this off. And you, you, you could, you, you, you know, oh, it's, it'll be a while before he, sent, he goes off to college and has to deal with those tough atheist professors. No. Give your, train up your child in the way he should go now. Because, I mean, it's, it's, I didn't, I didn't start using the internet until I was nine. And even then, I, there was no YouTube this was back in the early 2000s. Uh, there was barely any social media. There were a few forums. And MySpace was just getting off the ground. But nowadays, I mean, I, I've, I've seen like, like three-year-olds with tablets. I mean, the, the next generation, Generation Z... It's very, they're very technologically inundated. It's not like it was when I was growing up. I, I, I didn't really get into the internet. Uh, I really didn't enter the digital world until my teen years, which were in the mid-2000s, about 2005, 2006-ish. But you need, to, you, you need to teach your children and your teenagers apologetics and... YouTubers like Rationality Rules is one of the examples. You know, your nine-year-old could come across a video that says five reasons, five reasons God does not exist, and they may be pitiful reasons, but he's going to watch those, he's going to listen to those arguments, and he's going to think that mommy uh, has been feeding me a big pile of doo-doo. This is this is the stuff is false. So, do it. Proverbs twenty six: Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Second Corinthians ten five: We are to destroy arguments and everything that sets themselves up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Again, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. Uh, 
And I will see you next week. God bless.